Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm. Today on the Callahan podcast, well, we're not here. Uh, we're taking a few days off. Believe it or not, the first official days off since we started this little thing a year ago, which is pretty impressive. I'll take nothing away from Colin and he shows up and that's the most important thing. And we've been doing this for a year and we picked out some of our favorite interviews for our uh, holiday week. And in a few days, we start officially with our, our new friends, our new partners at podcast one next Monday, January, whatever that is, four, January four. Uh, we're excited about that. You'll see some of the difference. Hopefully uh, it'll be a big help. We'll uh, enjoy that partnership. Yes, January 4th, Monday is when we start with Podcast One. But till then, we're getting ready. We're uh, working toward that day. And in the meantime, like I said, we talked to some people over the years and we over the year and we picked out some of our favorite guests and we're going to play those for you this week. And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you uh, uh, stick with us this week and next week when we come back and uh, start with Podcast One on uh Monday. Hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year's. I had, I did, I did. In fact, I'm still full. I had a big Italian Christmas. So one of my favorite sports books of all time was called uh, Pros and Cons. I'm telling you, it was a precursor to much of the conversation here on uh, sports radio. It's about uh, bad guys in the NFL, bad guys, you know, criminals, like guys like Ray Rice and, you know, guys who uh, reel across the line, break the law, those guys. And it seems to be a recurring theme in the NFL and, you know, NBA, baseball, you name it. But Jeff Benedict wrote pros and cons years ago, and it seemed prescient because uh, he was talking about the trouble these guys get in and the trouble it causes the league. But he moved on and he uh, did this year. He's good at this. He's good at book writing and he's good at researching and he's good at telling stories. And he did the deep dive into the New England Patriots. He talked to Bob Kraft. He talked to everybody involved in the, in the Patriots. And I think what you got was the definitive story of the Dynasty, the Patriot Dynasty, the Belichick Brady years, the championships, all the all the chaos surrounding them, you know, Deflate Gate, you name it, Tom Brady, Bob Kraft, the whole deal, and I think Jeff Benedict put it together nicely as he tends to do. But uh, we talked just a few weeks ago. We talked to Jeff Benedict, author of uh, Dynasty, on the Callahan Podcast. This is the Jerry Callahan Podcast. I don't want to make you feel too old, Jeff, but last time, I shouldn't say last time, first time you and I uh, talked about one of your books was a great book about criminals in the NFL, pros and cons. I talked about that book for years. It was so good. (laughs) And you were ahead of your time, by the way, because it kind of became popular to... To, to get in, go in depth in some of the crimes, you know, when with Ray Rice and God knows with Aaron Hernandez, but way ahead of that, way before that, Jeff Benedict was chronicling some of the bad guys in the NFL and it was a great read. Well, thanks. I was actually in law school in Boston when I wrote that book, living in Brookline. And uh, just you mentioning it brings me way back because that feels like a long time ago. I just looked it up, my friend, 22 years ago, you and I <laughs> yes. were talking about the criminals in the NFL. And I, and before we get to dynasty, I got to mention Tiger Woods is one of the best sports books I've ever read. In fact, I may, I just made my list in the, my head and you got two of the top 10. Uh, and I don't know about dynasty yet. I haven't gotten through it. It's a, it's, it's, it's not an easy read, but it's a good one. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be a hit, but Tiger Woods was spectacular. I wow. recommend that to people that don't even like golf or don't care about Tiger. I say this is a in-depth biography, warts and all. Whether you like Tiger or hate Tiger, you will learn a lot. And to me, that's the best praise you can give someone who's doing a biography of a guy that famous 
is you will learn things you didn't know about Tiger. I learned that. I thought I knew everything about Tiger, but that book was so good. Well, I appreciate it. I, I actually felt, uh, for me, the, the Patriots book, uh, you know, when I got to the end of the writing part of it, I actually thought th this is the best work that I've ever done. Really? As a journalist. And uh, I mean, it sounds odd for me to be saying that, but just it, it's one of those things where when you go through a process as uh, long and grueling as this is, you can tell when you get to the end whether you know you've done something really good or not. And in this case, I think part of it is I had, Jerry, I had just such great material. And uh, the one of the reasons the Tiger book is is so good is because the material is so rich. Yeah. The subject matter is so good. And the Patriots uh, are that. The the dynasty years are so rich and in many ways just an epic American story that uh, when I got to the end of it, I just thought, you know, I, so you wonder, are you ever going to be able to get back here again? Because that, but, but, but I would have this, I'd have the same question, Jeff. Um, you're looking for, you know, some new material, a new subject a new uh, to write about. And you're good at this. You're experienced at this. I would look at Tiger as a, as a writer, as a journalist. And I'd say, I don't know if I can bring anything new to the table. I feel like that about the Patriots. I've been there every step of the way. I've read uh, a bunch of books and I've followed it daily for 20 years, 25 years. Hell, going back to, you know, when I, I went to the first game at, at uh, Schaefer Stadium. So I've been there from the beginning. And I think of someone like you, an investigative reporter, a good reporter. And I think, how, don't you have some reluctance because you feel like there's nothing left to say? Are you that confident that when you dive into this, this material, you're going to be able to tell the reader something they don't already know? Well, you know, Jerry, that's a really good question because when I looked, when we did the Tiger book, we had, there were 22 books in print about Tiger before really? we started ours. Uh, the Patriots are similar. Uh, yeah. There's, I read over 20 books before writing this one. And uh, there's also this big stable of great writers over the years that have covered this franchise. Some of those writers are still here. And, and Boston is notorious for having some of the best sports writers in the business that, that come out of this town. And so I was obviously aware of all that. But when going into any of these Tiger, we were total outsiders. Uh, neither Armin nor I were golf writers. We never covered the tour. In my case, I'd never even played golf in my life. Uh, so coming into this book, I, I feel like also uh, an outsider in one respect. I've never covered this team. I've never been to a press conference in Foxborough. I've never watched a game from the press box. And uh, I didn't know any of the personnel that I was about to write about. So in that respect, I'm coming at it with a set of fresh eyes. And really what I want to do as a writer, Jerry, is essentially uh, put on, for lack of a better term, a different pair of glasses and and then allow the, the reader to see this team th through a different set of eyes. And so I just become really a conveyor of that information. And that starts with finding a new inroad into this story. And so that's really what initially got me thinking about approaching this from the standpoint of ownership. And because I, I consulted the Sports Illustrated list of the 100 top sports books of all time. And when I looked at that list, I wasn't impressed. There was nothing on the list that impressed me. What impressed me was what wasn't on the list. There wasn't a single book that had anything to do with an owner. And there's been some pretty incredible owners. And, you know, think of George Steinbrenner, all these sort of big figures that have come through sports. And so that was one of the things I wanted to do with, with this approach is start with the owner and, and figure out how did he acquire this team and start the building blocks of what would eventually become the dynasty. So that was my sort of my entree in, and that's a different way in. It's a new way, and it's very similar to what we did in Tiger in terms of finding a way into his life story that hadn't been pursued before. But but Tiger didn't cooperate, correct? And and obviously Robert Kraft, Bob Kraft did. That was your my first question when I hear about you doing a 522-page <laughs> book on the Patriots. I'm thinking, that can't be unauthorized. You couldn't have no. done, gotten that in-depth without some help. So the help came through the owner, correct? 
Well, I started with the owner because if it just the world, but I want to write a book about a franchise, an organization, a team. It's, I don't want to write a biography about Tom Brady or Bill Belichick or or anybody. I, I want to write about the entire organization. So to me, the right way to go about it is to approach the person who owns the organization. You know, start with him. He, it's his team. It's, you know, he's been there from start to finish or from beginning to, you know, whatever the end is. And so it just made sense that I, if I'm going to ask to come into that house, I should go to the owner of the house. And and so I started with him and, and uh, you know, expressed a desire to do this. And of course, we were total strangers, as I was with everybody else in this project. But uh, that that was a starting point for me. And he got you access somehow to, to everybody. I mean, you did a, a million interviews, including Belichick and Brady. I found it interesting that you didn't go near those guys for the first year of your uh, your work on this, your, your effort. You were uh, doing your research and talking to other people, but you waited a year to approach Brady and Belichick? Why? Yeah, I waited a year. It's similar to, again, I don't want to keep making comparisons to Tiger, but Armin and I waited over a year before we approached Tiger for our first interview request, which was denied. But I'm just saying we took that same period of time. And the reason for that, Jerry, is I don't want to interview uh, someone like Tom, for example, who's been interviewed, I don't know, thousands of times over the years. I don't want to ask him the, the questions he's been asked over and over and over again. I didn't know enough in the beginning to interview him because I didn't know what I wanted to ask him. Right. So I, I don't want to have an interview with someone, especially someone whose time is so limited and have it feel like for them, why did I talk to that guy? That was a waste of time. And, and so there's a learning curve for me, a, tr a steep learning curve. And that first year, I was doing a lot of research, a lot of observing, watching, you know, just trying to get my bearings and, and trying to get an understanding about where I wanted to go in the narrative. And then I felt ready to approach, you know, a variety of people for interviews. Well, I always say the Patriots are fascinating because they're this this strange dichotomy. No organization works harder to be inaccessible, uninteresting. You know, they don't want to be uh, this this uh, soap opera or this this uh, uh, big, uh, 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 I don't know what you'd say, larger than life organization. Belichick wants to downplay everything. He wants to be boring. He wants to focus on football. And somehow they always manage to make news beyond the field. They always manage to capture everyone's imagination, even though they make a concerted effort not to in a way. And I wouldn't say, you know, Kraft is that way, but Belichick certainly that way. And Brady became that way. I think later in his career, after Deflategate, he felt burned after the Trump, uh, the whole Trump thing, he he kind of crawled into a shell and became uh, intentionally less interesting. Uh, did you find that when you dealt with Brady and Belichick and others that they really don't want to be uh, this 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 larger than life uh, uh, kind of fairy tale kind of uh, movie, you know, Hollywood story? They don't like that 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 whole uh, image. Well, I, I again, I guess I just. You know, I look at the world in a slightly different way. When I think about people who uh, use the phrase less interesting, I think a person who is in a shell and doesn't talk is far more interesting than someone who's always out there talking. Right. And, and that's one of the reasons that I was, again, attracted to Robert Kraft, uh, to Jonathan Kraft, to if you actually start working down the list of people that I interviewed, it's actually littered with people who don't typically talk to journalists and reporters right down to, you know, whether you're talking about physicians or members of the security detail for the team or, you know, Lee Johnson, who was only the punter in new England for two years. Most people don't even think of Lee Johnson when you think of the Patriots, but no. I'm looking for guys like that because they are conduits for great stories that no one's ever heard. I mean, has anyone ever interviewed Lee Johnson about the Patriots run? Of course not. I did because I found out that when I found out he was Tom Brady's locker mate for the first two years or year and a half that uh, Brady was there and Lee was on the team, I thought, you know, there might be something to learn from Lee because Lee was at the very end of his career. He actually had the kind of family then that Tom has now. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, a great marriage, kids, you know, doing a lot of family stuff. That's where Lee was then. Tom's this kid out of Michigan. And so, and he's, he's probing Lee with questions about what's it like to be in the league this long and to have a family and how hard is it to do all there's so many things to learn from that. There's foreshadowing and all that. And so I purposely look for, for characters or people like that who you wouldn't go to necessarily for an interview, but for a book like this, for me, that's exactly who I want to talk well, to. Well, I understand why Lee Johnson would take your call. Why did Bill Belichick, why did he talk to you? You'd have to ask Bill that. I don't know. Uh, I will tell you this, Jerry. When someone says yes to an interview, I never ask them why. <laughs> I just, you know, you you must be one charming guy. I I, I do think there's some and maybe you can uh, uh, you'd agree with this, that Belichick does want this all for history's sake. You know, he wants it on the record. He wants, uh, you know, he's a fan of NFL films and NFL history, and he knows he's a big part of NFL history because of this run. And he wants it to make sure that it's all on the record at least uh, through his eyes. He doesn't want to be bothered with it every day, but there are certain times where he will uh, tell his story. And I'm, I, I guess you were lucky. He's one of, uh, it was one of those times, or, or maybe not. How was he to talk to? Was he So, here, so here's what I – let me tell you just a couple of examples of how diverse the, the process of interviewing people for this book was because it was, it was a range – um, and I'll start with Randy Moss and then I'll, I'll get to coach Belichick, but Randy is notorious for not doing interviews. And I was aware of that and had approached him a couple of times and, and didn't get a response. And eventually I, I went, you know, through another route and he agreed to do an interview, but he asked for the questions written out in advance and submitted. For me, I, I like to give people questions in advance. I, I know that not every journalist does, but for the kind of book that I'm trying to write, it's actually beneficial if the person I'm going to sit down with reads the questions and actually has days to think about them. I find that I get better answers when I do that. And then there's also nothing hidden. It's like, this is what I want to talk about. And if there's something on the list you don't want to talk about, just cross it off. And I would say the same thing if I were sitting across from someone in a face-to-face interview right up front. In fact, I said that to Tom Brady the first time I interviewed him. I said, look, I got a long list here. If I ask you something you don't want to talk about, just say that you don't want to talk about it and I'll just go to the next one and I won't infer anything from the fact that you don't want to talk about it. You know, it's like that. And so with Randy, I emailed the questions and and then this is what happened. The next thing I know, I get a a digital file via, via email. He had had someone on the ESPN Monday Night Football production team ask him my questions as if they were me. And he <laughs> talked into a camera and recorded his answers. So I have a video, uh, audio of, of Randy Moss. And then they sent me the file. And that's how the interview went. Wow. Now, I, I looked at that and I thought, hey, for a guy who doesn't do a lot of interviews, I felt I was just extremely grateful that he took the time and he answered the questions. His answers were fantastic. In Bill Belichick's case, I, I sent him a massive list of questions. Uh, it, I mean, it was obnoxiously long and in chronological order because I didn't know if I'd only get to have one shot at talking to him. And uh, after he had a chance to review the questions, eventually he decided that he would rather respond to the questions in writing. And I said, terrific, because I've actually had that experience many times in the past, particularly with some lawyers that I've interviewed where they wanted to write out their answers. And what I find with people who do that, there's an upside and a downside. The upside is if you write answers out, you have to think a lot more about Mm. what you're saying because it physically takes time to write it out or type it out. And so you tend to get thoughtful responses. And that certainly proved to be true here. The answers that I did get from Coach Belichick were great. Um, they were illuminating, they were enlightening, and they were about things that I, I'm not aware of him talking about. Like he answered my Can- question about the first night, uh, the scene in the opening scene of this book, which is Drew Bledsoe in the emergency room at Mass General Hospital when Brady, Belichick, and Kraft are in the room. I asked about that. He answered that question. I asked about the very first time that he and Kraft met each other, which was in Indianapolis during the combine after he'd been fired from Cleveland and was about to be hired in Miami. 
he answered a, a great answer about what took place in that meeting. Those are the kinds of things I'm not asking Coach Belichick about third and 10. I mean, right. that, that's a waste of his time and total waste of my time. So that's what I did. Did he answer every question? No, he didn't. I didn't expect him to, but he answered enough. And from where I sit, I'm just appreciative. If he answered one question, I would have been appreciative. He did more than that. And, and so it just went like with Brady, it was sit down interviews that I did in his suite at the stadium. They were some of the best interviews I can honestly say I've ever done in my career as a journalist. And that's saying something because I've interviewed a lot of people over the years and done some really good ones. But Tom was was great. And in Robert's case uh, or in Jonathan's case, just, you know, th these interviews with them were they were more like conversations and um, they were interviews, but they were conversational. And I think that's why they were so enlightening because it wasn't a grilling. I, I'm just trying to learn about these guys. I just want to know sort of who they are and how they did what they did. And for me, it was just like uh, every day climbing into a time machine with them and, and sort of going back in time and trying to relive and recapture what's happened over the last 25 years. All right. I've uh, interviewed Brady probably more than anybody every every Monday for 19 years, I believe it was. And right. sometimes he was interesting. In the old days, he was a lot looser. As I said, Deflategate, he felt burned after that, and he kind of was a little more reticent and uh, reluctant to open up. Um, what can you tell me that you learned or that you got from Brady that I don't know? I mean, I, maybe – I'm more. I'm closer to the to the situation. I've read more than, than than most people, and and followed every interview that these guys have done for 20 years. Is there something you can tell me? I don't know. Well, Jerry, I, I mean, I don't want to be glib, but I think we'd have a better answer to that after you've gone through the book. And you might say, "I knew everything in here about Brady." I don't know because I don't know everything that you know. But I I felt like. I tried to read everything that's been written about Brady over the years, and there's obviously a lot. Uh, and I didn't want to just regurgitate old information. I certainly read Charlie Pierce's book, which I believe was the first book just about Tom. Moving just, the chains, right? Yeah, and and it's a good book. I mean, yeah. it was great. I learned a lot. But I was asking, trying to ask him different kinds of questions. Uh, I spent you know, I've said this to a few other people. I spent about 20 hours composing the questions for my first interview. And then I asked the Patriots for permission to go into his suite three hours before the interview. And I spent another three hours alone in that suite in the, in the silence of the suite and the silence of the stadium, the stadium was empty. And uh, that opening scene of chapter one is partly a reflection of what I saw. Uh, and it's, I just was trying to get in the right frame of mind that I needed to be in as someone who doesn't know how many chances I'm going to get to talk to this person. So these interviews have to be productive right. and they have to get to where we need to get to. And so, for instance, if I want to be with Tom Brady when he gets in a car accident in Boston, uh, you know, I, I want to I want to feel that and see that from Tom Brady's eyes and from Tom's perspective, not Jeff Benedict's perspective. And, and that's what I was trying to do with him. And I found him uh, tremendously effective as we went through these questions at, at enabling me to see it the way he saw it. But I know how this things. works. I, I, I know how this works. There had to be moments where you said, yeah, I got something that no one else has had. I got something that's going to make this book stand out from all the others whether it's from, with Brady or Belichick or, or maybe the opening scene, there had to be a couple of those moments in your, in what was it, two years of working yeah. on this? Two years. Yeah. There had to be a couple of those moments. There there were. And uh, I'll give you a couple. These are, these are in the book, so I'm comfortable talking about them. But the thing I was just mentioning about the car accident, um, when Tom answered that question, he, he was literally taking me blow by blow through his morning that day. Did, did you know, he mention it called calling into the radio station and talking to us that morning? He, he did. He, oh, he, actually, I think he had to cancel because of the accident. He usually called yeah. us from the road, and this was right. an accident was right in Boston yes. on his way to Foxborough, correct? That's right. He never got out of his neighborhood, basically. Right. Um, but as he just started to retell the story, the detail was so great about getting up, 
making a smoothie, getting in the car, putting the smoothie between his legs, starting to drive, meandering around, getting toward the light, looking both ways, pulling out, then the collision and, and just everything that happened. It was a sort of a rat-a-tat of events, uh, most of which I had never read or heard anywhere before. But the most, you know, sort of the moment for me was when he described going back home after the accident. He was going to go to the stadium, but he went back home. And when he walked into the apartment, and of course, Giselle was shocked to see him there because she thought he had gone to the stadium. And and there's a moment, it's a very emotional moment where, you know, she asked him like, my God, like what, what happened? Because he's got smoothie all over him and, and he looks uh, very shook up. And when Tom tell, told the story, it was emotional for him. It's emotional for me. I mean, that's the thing. That's when you know that as a as someone who's trying to chronicle a story, when you're feeling that the way they're feeling it, I know that that's going to be magic on the page. And so every time that something like that happened, and here's another example. One time while working on this book, you know, Robert Kraft is also a hard person to interview for the same reason that the other two guys are. They're so busy all the time. They, they don't just have blocks of time to sit around and talk to someone. Right. So I had to be uh, willing, nimble, to be ready on a, on a minute's notice. To I, I literally could get an email that said, you know, can you be to the airport in three hours kind of thing? And if so, uh, you know, Mr. Kraft has a flight to take. You can interview him on the flight. And something one time when that happened was when he was going to Pittsburgh. This was in the 19 season. And uh, it was after the mass shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And the Patriots, uh, weeks later, were going to Pittsburgh to play the Steelers. The game was on a Sunday. It's a must-win game, which they would lose. But that's not the point of the story. On Saturday, um, I got one of those last-minute phone calls to, to get up to Boston and, and take the flight to Pittsburgh because he was going out on Saturday to go to the synagogue. The people who had been displaced from their synagogue because it had been shot up we're going to service for the first time for a young man's bar mitzvah. And Robert decided he wanted to be there. And if I would fly with him, I could interview him on the flight. I thought, uh -huh. okay, great. So I went up there. And of course, when we got there, I've never been to a bar mitzvah. I'm not Jewish. I've never been to a synagogue before. I got to go. And I thought this would be a great experience. Wow, so I good. followed him in and I sat next to him in a very packed synagogue in Pittsburgh. It's hard for me to tell you this story without getting emotional, but that was an incredibly emotional day. I mean, everybody in that synagogue either lost a loved one or knew someone who had died in the shooting. It's not like a typical religious service that day. And you could just feel it when you walked in. Wow. It, the place is packed with Pittsburgh residents. They're Steeler fans. And in walks the owner of the New England Patriots. Most people didn't notice when he walked in and he sat down in like the third row and I was sitting right next to him like a fly on the wall. The rabbi, of course, knew he was there and partway through the service introduced Mr. Kraft to the audience and then invited him up to speak. It was totally impromptu. Up comes Mr. Kraft. He gets up to the podium and starts reading and speaking in Hebrew. And the, the whole audience was enthralled because he was introduced as the owner of the New England Patriots. After he got done speaking, he invited up the young man who was getting the bar mitzvah and his parents, and he pulled out of his pocket his bar mitzvah gift. These, this kid was a huge Steelers fan. And here's the Patriots owner making his year. And when he sat down in the row, back came down and sat next to me, the guy that was sitting behind him, a, a parishioner, leaned forward and handed him a head covering that had the Pittsburgh Steelers insignia on it and patted him on the shoulder and said, it's good that you came here today. And you, you could see the tears in people's eyes. It was like this incredible unifying moment. I have that scene in the book because I saw so many things like that working on this project for two years that I just wanted to convey, like, like I say, taking off your eyeglasses, put mine on for a minute and just let me show you, not tell you, show you what I saw. And it, it to me, it's a different look at three men and an incredible organization that, yes, like Tiger, they're the most visible in their industry, their sport, but there's so much more there. Um, and I, I'm just grateful that they let me see and, and feel as much as I did. 
That is a good story. I know you, when you were sitting there, you knew you had something and uh, I, I look forward to reading it. The Another emotional scene you have is when Brady goes to Kraft's house at the end, obviously uh, this spring goes to Kraft's house to tell him he's, he's out of here. He's going to uh, right. uh, Tampa Bay. Um, but first you, you mentioned that in 2010, I believe Kraft told him that if he ever wanted to go, if he ever wanted to move on and play somewhere else, he would let him. Is, is that right? Was that? No, like- that wasn't exactly what he said. But what happened in 2010 was uh, they were working on renewing, restructuring Brady's contract. And he was heading into like the last year of an existing contract. All of Brady's contracts, as you well know, are front loaded. That's been a, a pattern or method of operation for them. They front load the contracts the salaries are higher in the early years of the contract and the signing bonus is huge. But by the time you get to the back years of the contract, the salary is diminished substantially. And it's always understood that they're going to redo the contract before that those really low numbers kick in. And that was going on in 210. But the other thing going on in 210 is it's now been after Brady's knee surgery. He's missed a year. They're looking at actuary charts, which show he's getting to the age now and also when you have a player that's had the knee operation that he had, history shows that they might have two or three more years in them, but we're really looking at the end. That's what it looked like. In this was 10, 10 years ago. This is 10 years ago. And I actually saw those charts. I mean, the Patriots had graphics and they looked at the age and injuries and everything. They looked at Montana, Favre, Young, Elway, Marino. They were all on there. I, I read the, the statistics. I saw what the Patriots saw. And I also saw the, you know, kind of the report that the doctor had put together for them that was basically saying, in our medical opinion, you know, he doesn't have much time left. And so, you know, Belichick has already got a reputation and a, a, a history of how he deals with great players as they get towards the latter years of their careers when they're getting paid much more than they were earlier in their career and stuff like that. And Tom was concerned about that. His agent, Don Yee, was concerned about that. Rightfully so. I mean, it's a, it's like a natural thing for him to be concerned about. Robert is well aware of that. And, and the contract is not coming together as quickly as either of them had liked. Brady was frustrated. So Robert invited him out to Cape Cod to play golf. And uh, they did. They played around the golf. And then they went back to the summer home there. And they were joined there by Jonathan and they had lunch, the father, the son and the quarterback. And it's a it's a great scene and a great moment. And it's probably a conversation that may not have been able to happen, say, five years earlier. But the relationship has matured and evolved enough. This is more like a family meeting than anything. And it's the beauty of the relationship. It's like Tom has a brother relationship with Jonathan and a father like relationship with Robert. And they're talking about business, which is Tom's future, his contract, what Tom is secure about, what he's not. And basically there is when they made this really important gentleman's agreement, which I detail in the book because uh, I detail that meeting. And they made some promises to each other that were not written down. This is not like memorialized in writing. I think the reason that's so good is because there aren't many deals today that are done on a handshake. And this right. was done on a handshake which would become really important seven or eight years later when, when the things they promised each other back in 2010 really get tested. And, and they were tested. And, and so I connect those scenes. I mean, obviously, a lot happens in that eight-year span. But by the time you get to the Eagles Super Bowl that they lose and uh, what happens after that Super Bowl, there's a revisiting of the agreement that they struck in 10. Well, you you compare Brady and Belichick to uh, Lennon and McCartney, and I think you kind of compare Kraft. Kraft's George Harrison, correct? He's obviously uh, not one of these, uh, <laughs> no. the, the big two. But uh, John and Paul did not last nearly as long as Bill and Tom. Right. Uh, I think the people picking up this book, buying this book now, I think the most interesting thing to Patriot fans, to Patriot Nation, is the end. I mean, obviously, it's over. Brady's gone, you know, the, uh, Cam Newton's the quarterback, Belichick's still here, obviously, and everyone's fascinated to see how he does without Brady and see how Brady does without Belichick. But what, uh, obviously, the meeting uh, 
at Kraft's house, the decision was already done. Uh, Brady had already made up his mind. What was the breaking point? I know you get that question a lot. What was, yeah. what, when did it reach that point where it was over, that everybody knew it was over? So as I answer that, I also want to address a couple of things you said in the lead up to the question. I would definitely not compare Robert Kraft to George Harrison. Uh, I think that, and this sets up. He's the not Ringo. Don't tell me he's Ringo. <laughs> he's no Ringo. <laughs> I, I, my comparison, Jerry, to just put some context in the the reason I compared Brady and Belichick to McCartney and Lennon is that I, I'll tell you where that thought came from. One day, uh, the first time that I visited uh, Robert Kraft in his New York City apartment, so it's my first time going there. The newness of walking through the door and looking across this room at two big windows that overlook Central Park is that in between the windows were two framed pictures of the Beatles and they were autographed by all four of them. And the pictures were clearly taking, taken at the Ed Sullivan show when they came here for the first time to the United States. When they made that visit to New York, they slept in the same building that Kraft now owns an apartment in. And as we talked about the Beatles, a band, by the way, that he and Myra loved in the 60s and uh, it was like his favorite band at the time, it was clear, we started talking about how the band broke up prematurely, too early. They were at the, the peak, the pinnacle. They could have played together for so much longer. And that's where I started to get the analogy because I was thinking about an owner who spent the second half of the dynasty, basically from 2010 until this March, his biggest mission was keeping Lennon and McCartney together, keep the band together. He has the two biggest stars in the league on his payroll. One's a coach, one's a quarterback. To be able to have two stars that burn that bright and that hot side by side on the same sideline, to me was akin to if you had extended, somehow had someone who had enough influence and enough persuasive skills, enough savvy to keep Lennon and McCartney playing longer. But that didn't happen. So there is no craft comparison. I think maybe if the Beatles had someone like him that could have done that, things might have been different. But here, that's what this relationship was about. So was there one thing that broke it apart in the end? No, I don't think so. I think what you saw was a remarkably extended dynasty that went twice as long as Montana and Walsh, twice as long as Nolan Bradshaw, twice as long as Starr and Lombardi. And it went twice as long because of the, the unique role that the owner played and he had relationships. Robert's really the bridge. And that's why I have a chapter near the end called Shuttle Diplomacy. There's a lot of diplomacy that goes on because Bill and Tom are very different guys. Right. And Robert has this great respect for both of them, but he also knows that they do different things and they're different people. So he has a familial relationship with Brady. It really is. By, last, by the time you get to the end, it, it is not an exaggeration to say it's like father and son. I mean, it's that way. And that's why that last scene is so emotional. But the relationship, you can't underestimate the relationship that he has with Belichick. It is, without a doubt, the most efficient, successful owner-coach relationship in all of American sports in our lifetime. You can't point to another owner and another coach who have accomplished more and stuck together longer than these two. And so I think that that's maybe Rupert Murdoch summed it up best. I, when I interviewed Rupert for this book, again, why would you interview Rupert Murdoch for a book about the Patriots? Well, because he knows the owner really well from negotiating all these television contracts. And when I interviewed Rupert, he said something really interesting. He said, if Robert Kraft had gone into politics, he probably would have gone, on, gone down in history as one of the greatest diplomats in American history. But he didn't go into politics. He went into business and he went into sports. And he used those diplomacy skills more than ever in the Brady-Belichick relationship, keeping them together so much longer. So I think just eventually, 20 years is an eternity in this game. I don't need to tell you that because we, we have no marker we can look to and say, well, those guys did that. No one's done that. Right. And I think at the end, finally, it was just time for Tom to get out of the car. I mean, they'd gone as far as they can go as a duo. And what's remarkable to me, Jerry, is – and I don't know if you've read the ending, something that we're not we're not used to seeing. Usually when, you know, if you go back to Lennon and McCartney, that was not a pretty breakup. Right. Simon and Garfunkel, not pretty. Walsh and Montana, not good. 
Nolan, you know, Chuck Nolan, Terry Bradshaw, I mean, that, that was a really ugly parting. That didn't happen here. And I think that says something about the three men. See, I think they knew before last season, before the 2019 season, they granted him free agency for a reason. Belichick was ready to move on. Brady was ready to move on. They didn't make it official, and there was a lot of hopeful Patriots fans thinking they'd work it out and he'd stay, but I never thought he would stay. I thought he was gone before last season even began. I think, I don't know about, about those actuary tables, but I think Belichick came to the conclusion that he's 43, he's the greatest ever, but he is not superhuman. He, he, the end is near, and Belichick, as we know, he is a cold, hard man. He does not get emotional, and he was not going to get swept up in the emotion, and he said, he can go now, we're moving on, and he's that comfortable and that confident in his ability. You know him. He's not afraid of, of, of public pressure or the fans. Right. Getting, he just did what he thought was best for him and the team, and Brady said, Okay, I'll move on. And uh, they made the decision a long time ago. But you write about the meeting. I guess it's the the farewell. What month was it that Brady went to uh, Kraft's house and they had an emotional meeting, an emotional goodbye, where they couldn't hug because of uh, because of COVID? But that was the the official end. So I'll answer that. But here's the thing: we got to talk again after you've read, and then we'll. You might think the same thing you think now. But you might not. But let's just talk again right. after we do that. Hey, it's five hundred and twenty-two pages, yeah, so, Jeff. You're I'm, have to give me some time, I'm just saying uh, the date. You wanted to know when that was. It was in March, and it was hours, literally hours after Tom's contract had expired, uh, that they met in Kraft's house. And he and they said goodbye. I would think that if you're one of the big three, you say that was an amazing run, and you, you know, you, you. You don't cry because it's over. You smile because it happened. I mean, it was. So you definitely got to read it first. <laughs> well, give me a te- tease me. Tell me. What am I missing? Uh, let's just say there, there wasn't a lot of smiling going on. Oh, I don't mean, you know, literally smile, but they got to look back and say that was one hell of a run. As you point out, it's never been done. It probably never will be it, done. It, it's not going to be done again. And we're and just it, not going to. I mean, that you know, I interviewed both commissioners uh for this, meaning Tagliabue and, and uh, Did you? Goodell. And uh, by the way, the, the interviews with both commissioners were incredibly enlightening. Um, I interviewed them more than once, and I just found them both uh, forthcoming, honest, um, just really trying to really answer the questions that I was asking. And uh, Tagliabue in particular, j- just because in fairness to Roger, Paul had more time to give me than Roger because he's not the commissioner anymore. And I, I found Paul to be uh, just going out of his way to be helpful. I, I don't know why he did that as much as he did, but it certainly enabled me to learn things a lot faster by having him feeding me information by the spoonful that were just, you know, heaping with information. But Roger was helpful too. But my, what, the reason I was mentioning them is because they have a, sort of an assessment on what's been going on in Foxborough for the last two decades as well. And, and I just think that there's a consensus that what we've all witnessed for the last 20 years, uh, as we get further away from it in time, we're going to look back with it with even more appreciation for how rare and unusual it was. It's, it's like there's probably never going to be another DiMaggio mantle Yankee run. Um, there'll never be another period like Bill Russell had with the Celtics. And I think what this team just did in the NFL, it's hard to imagine how any team could ever do something like this again in the history of football. Uh, I just think we, we've we been treated to a unique instance in history. And that's, to me, that's what makes it worthy of, of you know, a 600-page book. This this right. isn't oh, just no a question. little run. No question. It's, uh, it's the historical record, too, I assume. I get these, you know, questions like you do all the time about Brady about Belichick and I I've asked Brady a million times about his relationship with Belichick they I don't think they've ever had dinner you know they don't hang out I think they were forced to play golf at Pebble Beach once or twice but they don't get together socially they don't have a lot in common um my question is do you do they are there hard feelings simple question are there hard feelings do they like each other I know they respect each other of course they respect each other but do they like each other I mean, Jerry, I, 
I would never answer something like that for them. Like that's a place I think a journalist shouldn't go unless one of those or both of those people told you that answer. And that's not something I asked um, either of them. And, and so I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is this, and I, I do make this sort of, I draw this picture in the book, and it's this, is that when, when Belichick puts on a headset and Brady puts on a helmet, there's a telepathy between them. There's a language spoken. And, and that's, again, I say that at the end of this book, by the way, and that's where I make the comparison to the breakup of the Beatles and the Abbey Road studio. The idea being that Lennon and McCartney had a lot of friction and they were separated in a lot of ways, except when it really mattered, when they were in the studio with headsets on. That's when they make the magic. When they come out of the studio, they literally go completely different directions. And I think what's important here, it, it's, I love the fact that they're, they're not having dinner all the time and doing all this stuff. To me, that's all the more impressive that they've pulled off what they pulled off. And there's a scene, I witnessed this, and I actually took a picture of it. That's why I, I can describe it vividly in the book, because I was there and I captured it on film. I have more than one picture of it. But it, it's in the 2019 season and, uh, excuse me, 18 season and There'd been a lot written and said about the, the friction and the disconnect and the fact that they don't communicate off the field and all this other stuff. And it's pregame. They're at uh, Gillette Stadium. And as they're coming off the field, you know, because you've been to these this stadium so many times, Bill is off in his own place during warmups. And he spends a lot of time quiet by himself. And Brady's locked in with what he's doing. And they, they're typically not near each other during pregame warmups. In this instance, I happen to be standing right near the tunnel where they go in as they come off the field uh, after pregame warm-up. And Brady was coming from one direction and Belichick was coming from another. And Belichick was not looking up. He was kind of looking down and wherever his thoughts were, who knows, but he looked like he was somewhere else. And Brady saw him and went directly to him. By the time he got to him, Bill noticed someone was there and looked up and it was Tom. And Tom reached out. And, 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 you know, took his hand and Belichick looked up and there was an expression on his face that I could only describe as sincere and genuine appreciation. And he reached out and he patted Tom on the back. It's interesting that they didn't communicate. It's not like words coming out. It's not like when Tom sees Robert on the sideline and they hug each other before every game and they, they tell each other they love each other and all that. that there's a lot of verbal between them. This was not that, but what it was, at least to me, as I was like right there and capturing this with my phone, was that it, it, it was a gesture, a gesture by Brady, accepted by Bill. There's a moment, like a meeting of the minds, and I, I saw it. I witnessed it, and then what I loved about it was then Tom went first and Bill followed, head back down. So Bill's looking at the ground. Tom's looking up. There's all those fans draped over the tunnel like they are every week. And they're screaming Brady's name. And it just the imagery of Bill walking behind the star, Tom, and all the people screaming Tom's name, Tommy, Brady, yelling, all that. And then as he descends down the tunnel, now it's Bill's turn. And as Bill gets to the steps, of course, they're yelling his name. And the two of them just disappear into the tunnel like they're gone. And as I watched that, to me, the, the world slowed down in that moment. Like I felt like I was watching this whole thing in slow motion. And it, there's just so much that I felt I could pull out of that from an imagery standpoint about these guys that, um, that I just tried to capture. Again, I didn't ask him about that. This was just something I witnessed. And so when I describe it in the book, it's because it was an observation I made. It was just something I saw when I was there in a quiet moment. It, it, it's, it's interesting, Jerry, isn't it, when you think about a quiet moment in a stadium with 68,000 people. Right. But that's the thing about Bill and Tom. When they're out there, they're, they are in their own world. Like this is their domain. And I think that, uh, you know, all these other folks that are there just have got to watch them, but they're in their own domain when they get out on the field. Was there ever a moment last year where it was close? They were Kraft was close to keeping it all together, to, to keeping Brady here to finish his career. Was that close? You know, I 
I don't know. I think that, you know, Robert was doing everything he could uh, to keep him. He, look, he's done this year after year after year. At some point, right. it's going to end. And I think if you in the 18th season, when they played in Kansas City for the AFC championship game, which most people thought the Chiefs would win in the tunnel before the kickoff of that game, Robert Kraft was in the tunnel and he ran into Joe Montana and Joe's wife. Uh, and they're friendly with Robert. They'd been to Israel with him. They came up and said hello and hugged and exchanged greetings. And then Joe and his wife went off, you know, out the tunnel and onto the field to tremendous applause from the Kansas City fans. And, and Robert's standing in the tunnel watching this and thinking, that's not right. Like, he's not a chief. <laughs> he's a 49er. He yeah. built the 49ers dynasty. He is the heart and soul of the 49ers dynasty. And that's how he feels about Tom. Like, it's not right for him to play anywhere else. That's what he was thinking in that moment. And so the Antonio Brown story, which is told in chapter one of the book with him, the decision to bring him to New England, part of that is again, another effort by the owner constantly looking for ways to make it attractive for Tom to stay. Was and Tom upset when they cut Antonio Brown loose? I mean, you'd have to ask Tom that. I, that's not a question I asked him because mm -hmm. it didn't really matter for what I was doing. I don't know. But he was certainly excited when he was – he was excited he was coming. Right. But he was also excited that he was asked. Oh, interesting. What happened – I know you don't know the answer to this, but I'll ask you to speculate because people ask me this all the time. What happens now? I mean, what happens now? What happens for Brady in, 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 in Tampa and Belichick without Brady in New England? What's your guess? Well, Jerry, you know, because, I, I mean, we've done a number of interviews over the year. I, I'm not one of those guys who likes to make projections. I'm very comfortable talking about what I know because I just spent two years of my life doing nothing but research this. So I'm very comfortable talking about the dynasty. I'm not a guy who likes to make prognostications about what's going to happen in the future because I, I have no idea. Uh I just but, know, but that you just wrote the story of the dynasty. So the question <laughs> is, is the dynasty over? Jeff? Well, I define dynasty in this book as having the three principal core members of the dynasty intact. And so this dynasty, the Brady Belichick Kraft dynasty has concluded. Right. Now, could the Patriots continue to win Super Bowls? Of course they could. Um, and they still got, in my opinion, the, the smartest, most sophisticated owner and the best, the most genius coach are still on the same side. And so, uh, you know, what happens in the future? I don't know. And, and same with Tom. I mean, Tom's just proven people wrong for a long time. And so yeah. people look foolish every time they make these projections and they sound like they just, you end up looking like you don't know anything. And I, I'm admitting I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But, it, is, uh, it is funny. You guys, 43, he's been hurt. You know, and, he, and, and everyone still expects him to go out and, and win. And yeah. he's not going to be able to do it forever. It, eventually, it ends for all of us. Yeah. So it's going to end. Will it be this year, next year, whatever? It's just hard to imagine Brady, you know, coming to the end, you know, because right. he's been so – he's defied every prediction, all the odds forever. It seems yeah. like – you know, he, he can't do it forever, but, you know, no, no, maybe he will. You know, maybe just, he will. <laughs> he's, he's pulled it off for so long. Well, it's, it's. I mean, it is certainly fertile material here for you, Jeff Benedict. I got to ask, though, as a big fan of your first NFL book, Pros and Cons, and the Tiger book. Yeah. Where's the dirt here? Who's the bad guy? Who's, who is well, not going to be happy when Dynasty is out there and, uh, and everyone's reading it and it's in all the stores? Who's not going to be happy with it? You know, I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't look for, look, pros and cons was 20, whatever you said, 22. Wait, two feels, years to, me, ago. to me, it feels like 50 years ago, but I, I was a different writer back then. I was in law school. I was a kid. I was learning the trade. Um, and I, I'm, I, I love the books that I wrote early on, but I'm doing a really different thing, Jerry. Now I, I primarily do biographies. When you think of biographies, you think of people. Yeah. And basically the last three books I did before this were biographies this is basically a biography of an organization. And so when we did Tiger Woods, for example, we didn't go in looking for dirt. In fact, there's nothing interesting about that. What's interesting is when you can produce a book about Tiger and people who don't like him and have never liked him can get to the end of the book and go, 
I kind of like him now. I, I got to say, I, I went through that. I mean, I didn't dislike him, but he certainly was a scoundrel for a while there. And you managed to present kind of this balanced view where you you understand why he was the way he was in, in some ways. Because for, for one thing, his parents, I, I blame his parents. They, he was not raised to be a nice, gracious guy. You know, they were not good people, in my opinion, at least from what I've read. Sure. And in a way, I understand why he was so arrogant and why he was such a bad husband. Because you know what? His father wasn't a great husband. And that's who he learned from. Uh, but I know you weren't going in looking for that, but you found no, it and I you reported it and it was a great read. Yeah. And just trying to like with any story uh, that I work on at this point in my life, I've my motto is less judgment, more empathy. I constantly tell myself less judgment, more. Empathy. This is one of those times where having something way out of balance is a good thing as a writer. The empathy should be way up and the judgment should be way down. It, it has to be that way when you're talking about trying to uh, see people through. Think about like when you go to a movie that's 3D and you have to put on glasses because the dimensions are different. Everybody else is wearing one dimensional glasses. When you get in the theater and you put these 3D on, the depth is different. Every, everything looks different. And that's what I'm trying to do here is I don't want you to just see what you've already seen. And so, especially someone like you who's seen so much, I'm trying to find some angles to look at this that might be new so that the perspective can be a little different and, and, and just show you different sides of people. And I think the complexity of the characters in the story, I mean, look, I covered Deflategate and Spygate and Aaron Hernandez and because these things are important. They're part of the dynastic history. Um, but rather than just sort of regurgitate those things, which Patriots fans have heard ad nauseum. Uh, I tried to look at each of those episodes, again, through the eyes or over the shoulders of the, of the main characters in the dynasty and how it affected them and how they dealt with it. Just tried to do that through all of it um, and not put my gloss over it, Jerry, but just, you know. Although you do get into the Kaepernick, the initial Kaepernick chapter, correct, with uh, what the league went through in 2016? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Kraft's yes. role in that and Goodell. Yes. Yes. And and you say an owner, a group of owners were trying to uh, uh, stop the uh, the kneeling or the protests. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think I, it's a little different now, Jeff. I don't know if you Absolutely. Noticed. Yeah. It's, it, you know, of course, I wrote that and uh, we went to submitted the manuscript for publication before George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. I had obviously had no idea that what was going to happen in America this summer. I did know about the pandemic because I was still writing when the pandemic started. So, in fact, the last scene occurs during the COVID outbreak, and COVID is a factor in that scene. But the the racial uprising and protests against police brutality had not reignited when I finished writing the book. So I chose to write about Colin Kaepernick and the president and his his role in inflaming all of this, and and he was the inflamer. And the league had to deal with it, and they didn't know how to deal with it at first because it, it was they were blindsided by it. I mean, let, look, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying nobody expected the president to go down to Alabama and make those statements out of the blue. And they were uh, the language he used was uh, was insulting, and it was inflammatory. It was offensive, and it it, it just triggered um, a whole tsunami of problems. And so I thought it was important to deal with it in the book because. It's not an intrinsically patriot story, but again, by this point in the dynasty, Robert Kraft is the most influential owner in the league. He has a very good relationship with the commissioner. He has a relationship with the president of the United States. He has a relationship with his players, and he, he led. He was the first owner to put out a statement. It was the most critical statement of any of the owners, which is interesting. And, and so from there, I, I, again, I don't want to give too much away, but you can take that line all the way to where I left off. And by that point, you know, you've got Jay-Z in the equation. You've got Meek Mill in the equation. You've got a lot of other things going on. And I just thought, again, it's, it's the, that's the, 
the depth of this story. There's a lot going on here. It's not just football. You know, it's amazing. Uh, I'll leave you with this, that the, all three, the big three, you know, Belichick, Brady and, and uh, Kraft have relationships. All three have been friends with Donald Trump at one point or another. And everyone's still wondering, are they still friends? You know, Brady was obviously, Brady kind of denounced him at one point because I think his wife and his sisters don't like Trump and he doesn't want to deal with it. But I think you're going to find out Belichick is still friendly with him and so is Kraft. Uh, they keep it, you know, they keep it as quiet as possible, but I'm not sure at some point we won't see that those, those guys are back when, you know, Kraft, when Trump's out of office and maybe when Belichick's retired, they, you know, we'll see him whatever playing golf or something. It's just hard to believe that these, all these stars collide in this in this day and age. Uh, but anyway, Jeff, good luck. Thanks, Jerry. Jeff Benedict, thanks for your time. Uh, I just want to once again thank our, our great sponsors, Shea Concrete and Allied Paving in DCU. We love the folks at DCU and everybody who stood with us who, uh, for the last 12 months. It wasn't easy, as everybody knows. It was a crazy year, a challenging year. We made it through, and we were hoping – to uh, to do what we're going to do Monday, January 4th, hook up with a big comp- a big podcaster in Podcast One. That happens Monday, January 4th, and we're looking forward to it. Once again, thanks to everybody who listened. Thanks to everybody who who rated, reviewed, told a friend. Uh, we, we wouldn't be here after 12 months without you, so we really, really appreciate it. I appreciate all uh, all the co-hosts, sidekicks, whatever we want to call them, Shattuck, and uh, Turtle Boy and Reamer and VB and Mute and uh, and you name it, Bob Snyder, and especially Dave Colonnay, that dope. He showed up every day. We've been here for a, ye- a year, almost a year now, haven't missed a day. We're taking a few days off, prepping, preparing, getting ready for our big hard launch on January 4th when we uh, team up with uh, Podcast One and do this thing for real. We're looking forward to it. But any again... I hope everyone had a great Christmas and a great New Year's and a great New Year's Eve. And we will talk to you again January 4th. Why am I stopping? No one else stops. I don't. I, can I go home? The Jerry Callahan Podcast.